You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Good morning, y'all. How's it going? Hey, good. How are you? Good. Hey, JT, I was noticing that, uh, I mean, when we're recording this, the Denver Nuggets just got a big win last night. Do you feel like, did your allegiances immediately switch back I've over to the Nuggets fan, man? I was rooting for them with LaFonso Ellis and Dikembe Matumbo and okay. Antonio McDice, Mahmoud Abdul-Aruf. I've always been a Nuggets fan. Wow, dude. And you just threw out those names like you've been working on them, like the Wikipedia page. I mean, no, man. I've been following. <laughs> I, I was, I was a fit when I was a kid here. They won 17 games one year. And I think I was at like seven of those 17 games, which meant I was also at a lot of the losses. Okay. I mean, they were, they were, I think they, I think that was the worst year ever in basketball. Wow. Close to. Okay. <laughs> Is there a big follow? Is is Denver a sports community? Oh like yeah, da- like Dallas feels like a sports community, right? Denver similar. Uh, the Broncos in particular. The people like the Rockies, the Abs, and the Nuggets, but the, we are Broncos town for sure. Probably well, just as much as the Cowboys. Okay, just as much as the Cowboys. That's that they. No, 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 no. I, I should rephrase that. Not as much, but like as it's comparable. Okay. 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 So. Uh, well, and the, the reason it's probably comparable is because we have a better team. Oh gosh, there's actually See, things to root for. <laughs> See, you know, you can't you can't allow JT to have much banter time because <laughs> he's just gonna find a way to just target you with it. You know, um, Jen, when you think about the sports, I was uh, gonna say come up with a foolproof formula to keep me completely out of the banter. So I see what you've done. You've hijacked banter time. Well, you know, you know, if you, if you, if you can't join them, beat them, I guess. Right. Or box them out. Um, well, uh, Hey, I don't know what that means, but I, I, it sounds like a good plan. It sounds like a good sports analogy. I remember one of the earliest pieces of teaching advice I heard you give in like, I feel like it was maybe when you were talking to the interns one time about teaching and like speaking and teaching. And you said, Hey, listen, guys, I know it's going to be easy for 99% of your analogies to be sports (laughs) analogies, but just know half of the church is not following what you're saying. I remember that too. I know all the sportsy girls are like, she doesn't speak for me. But I had a funny thing happen uh, this week. I was talking to someone about translating some of the stuff I've done into Spanish. And and he was saying, you know, well, one of the things we would do is we would swap out all of your um, football references, you know, for like soccer references. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, you're going to have, no, there's nothing to swap out. You're like, great. That will be the fastest part of the translation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, zero work to be done. I'm here to help, guys. <laughs> well, uh, hey, listen, we're going to continue in on Genesis 1 through 11, focusing specifically today on the first days of creation, looking at Genesis 1 and then shading a little bit into Genesis chapter 2. And all of this is part of the larger coverage this season of uh, following along with Genesis 1 through 11. And, you know, like we do, we will cover kind of a large portion and then we'll kind of circle back to do some deep dive. And so I like how you called it coverage. It's like you're using your sports analogy. Can't get out. Well, I I didn't even think about it. You said you said we're continuing our coverage through Genesis (laughs) one through (laughs) eleven. Listen, listen. You know me well enough to know that if I got a if I got a sports analogy in, it was by pure accident. There's gonna be dancing girls and a halftime show. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yes. 
<laughs> that is a, that it's, that's an image for sure. Uh, In between day three and four, we'll have a little break with some tunes for you. <laughs> with a performance. Um, do you guys, no, I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. Yeah, there was, thank you. Okay, I, just there, you, I saw you reel that back in. I appreciate well, that. I just, I wanted to start talking. I have like deep, deep, deep passionate beliefs about half Super Bowl halftime shows. Uh-huh. That's I saw it. You, I, were about, you were about to say Beyonce. I saw it. I was I was about to just <laughs> communicate some things, but that's a soapbox I should leave for a different time, right. I think. We'll save um, it. Yeah, save it. Uh, so let's start with this. Uh, original audience for Genesis is crucial. And particularly when we get to these first days, we've covered this a little bit already, but it'd be good to just circle back so that we make sure that the audience knows uh, this is who the original audience is for the book of Genesis. And so when we're talking about the book of Genesis, we're talking about kind of book one or volume one of a five book series called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These books are entrusted. These words are revealed to Moses, who is now the representative rescuer and leader for the people of Israel. And they are getting this revelation on the outside of Egypt. They have been rescued from Egypt. They have been brought to Mount Sinai and God is forming them to take them in to Canaan, to the promised land. That is the original audience. This is post-Exodus Israel hearing from Yahweh, creator of the world. So they're hearing a creation story that predates them significantly. It goes all the way back, not just before their time in Egypt, but before Father Abraham. It's going all the way back, 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 back to the beginning. And why is this crucial for us to understand when we start looking at Genesis 1 through 11, that this is who the original audience is? Yeah. So one of the reasons Moses is writing is because he wants to prepare that they're in that in-between space between what they've left and where they're headed. And so he writes these first five books to give them roots and shoots. He wants to root them in, this is where you came from. And he wants to give them um, shoots. He wants to give them something that will hold them steady in the place that they're going. So it's, it's the history and the law is the combination that you're going to see there. And we talked about in a previous episode about the, the sort of the classic worldview questions that, that these 11 chapters in particular are asking and answering. And as you pointed out, Kyle, I think that they're not just asking and answering those questions in a vacuum. So those questions of, you know, uh, where did I come from? Why am I here? What's the problem? What's the solution? Those questions are being asked and answered within the context of where they came from and where they're headed so that they will understand why Israel is a nation set apart. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. And so, and we, the roots and shoots thing is, that's very valuable. So the the story is not I just stole it. Oh, you did? Okay, well, sure. great. Um <laughs> I am, pretty, I the, am I the only one here who's not just ad libbing? <laughs> 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 I was like, golly, shooting off the I hip. Was, I would like to know that now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what? Um, but I think that that that's really good, Jen. It reminds me of something, friend of the show, friend, uh, friend of ours who's taught for us in different environments. Uh, that Roots and Shoots things reminds me of what Barry Jones says. JT, you're going to love this quote. You remember it. Uh, he says, your creation story determines the trajectory of your culture. Yep, yeah. that's the exactly root, right. Roots and Shoots thing, where like Israel is receiving a creation story. And JT threw this word out in an earlier episode, but it's important. I think it's important um, to capture this. That creation story, you, we could call that a cosmology a cosmology, and they're receiving it in in a world of competing creation stories, competing 
cosmologies. JT, isn't that right? Like Israel is not just, they're not, like Jen said, they're not receiving this story in a vacuum. They're receiving this story in a world where there are other accounts of how this has happened. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Wait, before that, just back up and what is, what is cosmos? Like, why do we have the word mm. cosmology? What does it mean? Are you asking me? Yeah, I'm asking you. Well, Kyle just used it, so you should make him define it. <laughs> I don't know if he can, but I'm pretty sure you can. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's ultimately just talking about the the creation of the cosmos of the world. Like, it's a, it, it's just a fancy way of talking about the creation account and how to make sense of who is the creator, what is the creation, what is the purpose of the creator-creation relationship. Yeah. Is that fair, Kyle? Is that how you'd say it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, in some ways, cosmology would be like theology. Cosmos is the world, the earth, right? right? So it's like study of the world, study of the earth, account of the world, right. words about the world, whereas theology is words about God. So when we're talking about cosmology or cosmologies, we're talking about words about the world, yeah. uh, the account of creation or how things came to be. Yeah, so also the quote you just gave from Barry Jones about a culture's creation account determining the trajectory of the culture and their understanding of the world, they, they're having to undo other creation accounts. Mm -hmm. It's not just that they have a blank slate and have kind of this neutrality as they walk through the wilderness. All of the, everything that they would have been told, the stories that their children would have heard in you know, a little Egyptian catechesis class would have been very <laughs> different than than. The, the story that, that Moses is telling them about who God is and who they are and what his plans are for the world. So it's not just a, a formative uh, story. It's also deforming the other stories and deconstructing the other stories that they would have been familiar with. And had they not done that, the Israelite culture would have had a very different trajectory if Barry Jones's quote is true. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's um, part of the reason why uh, some really make a case that Genesis 1 or Genesis 1 through 11 is, as we've said before in an earlier episode, polemical or argumentative, mm -hmm. that it's apologetic in some sense, and that it's not just giving Israel, this is what has truly happened. But it is giving Israel that story in a way that deliberately looks to, like G uh, JT said, I'm going to say like Jesus said, Jesus. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, no. It wouldn't have been that far off. Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay, okay. Oh, boy. This is, this is, not, this is not good. Um, but, uh, but like JT was saying, the story is not just given to them to give the true account of the world, but to actually undo what the false account of the world, how it shaped them. And That's how right. it's been ingrained into them. And uh, so well, and the reason this is important, the reason maybe we're kind of spending some time here is typically modern readers come to the text needing to be deconstructed or deformed from the other creation accounts that we're given today, things like evolution or other things. And now those things are important to interact with in the biblical text and see what God is doing in creation. However, evolution was not the creation account that, that Moses wrote a polemic against mm -hmm. or that he's arguing against. That doesn't mean we shouldn't interact with it and see what the Bible says about it, but we shouldn't necessarily come to the text with those assumptions and questions and presuppositions, expecting it to answer those things. Yeah, so this is really important. When, when we come to the text, what are some of the questions that we want to ask of it that it is not trying to answer? Well, I mean, the biggest one is obviously the, uh, like the dating of creation. 
Like, okay. when did this happen? Like, in terms of, is it, uh, was this way, way back? Was it 6,000 years ago? Was it 60,000 years ago? Was it 60 million years ago? Was it 60 billion years ago? That's just not a question. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have meaningful answers to that. And I'm right. not saying that scripture can't for, uh, can't um, uh, shape, inform, them. Yeah. inform that. I'm just saying Genesis 1 is certainly not, there is not an answer to that question in Genesis 1. Mm -hmm. It's just, not there. It's not on their radar. And I think to get to what JT was saying, that's because we are addressing the false story most often when we deal with creation of naturalism. Yep. Yeah. And that is naturalism was naturalism being the idea that the world is closed and purely material and has no external spiritual or supernatural forces operating in it or within it or around it. That's natural. That's a kind of hatchet version of naturalism. That is on nobody's radar in the ancient Near East. Wow. You have competing supernatural accounts of creation. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Nobody's sitting around going, I don't think God had anything to do with this. <laughs> Everybody's well, saying, my God had everything to do with this, or these gods had everything yeah. to do with this. So, well, the, I think that, yeah, I think the two primary questions that most students of the Bible today come to this account with are when or how? Yeah. How was the earth created? When was the earth created? But the 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 text itself is actually asking and answering two different questions. It's saying who and why. Mm. So um, so that's the way best way for 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 me to help people make a turn on this is set aside your desire to know when and how based yeah. on this particular portion of scripture. I'm not saying that. And again, as we've said, those are good questions to ask. But Genesis is not interested in helping you with them in in, in this creation account. Uh, it is interested in helping you with who and why. And yeah. it's going to be very clear, as we've already talked about with Genesis 1-1, it is God who created. He created everything. He did so for his glory. Yeah. yeah. And this God is not the gods of Egypt. He is the right. triune God. Right. Yeah, right? Which we're going to see as we walk in. And so one of the ways that I think people learn to grow in their comfort of uh, sort of undoing some of the ways they've thought about these passages before is to see that when Moses writes this particular passage, he does, so, as he's describing God bringing order out of chaos, he actually does it in a very orderly way. Right, yeah. And let's talk about that. What is really happening? We, there is a symmetry, a format, um, uh, there is a structure to the Genesis 1 account in terms of mm -hmm. how creation is happening. What's what's really happening in terms of a creation flow in the first days of creation? What do we see? What are some of the rhythms? Well, we're given an opportunity to see a literate reading of the text. So I'm not saying we're not going to pass judgment on whether you want to read it literally in this moment, but let's talk about a literate reading. How do we look to see how the author set this up to, to bring us understanding? And um, it, it's a pretty simple thing. It's been around for a long time, but it hasn't often been taught, I find, and it's called the framework theory. You guys, I'm sure, are familiar with that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and I feel like once it's, it's like magic eye, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, <laughs> because we talked about, you know, previously the whole, the earth was, out for, was without form and void. And so what happens is um, you pick up on those ideas of form and um, filling, that it was, it was without form and it was empty. Uh, and then you see in the six days of creation that God forms and he fills. And specifically, you see that he forms on days one, two, and three, or he creates kingdoms. And then on days four, five, and six, he fills those kingdoms. And he does so in a, in a corresponding way. So day one and day four correspond, day two and day five correspond, day three 
and day six correspond. Let me let me ask a question that a listener might be asking. And Jen, I know you've talked a lot and you've taught me a lot about, you know, structure and looking for these structures, particularly chiastic structure and how we, chiastic being these kind of mirroring structures, like you were suggesting, like one, four, two, five, three, six. When we get into stuff like that, sometimes it feels really cute. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Like, it feels like, oh, like, oh, we just found this structure. Like convenient, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where it's oh, like, how convenient. Oh. Yeah, and you, Authors and you, everywhere want to punch you in the face. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, but not no, me. No, no, no. Of course not you. Yeah, you, wouldn't, not you would never think that. Um, but no, but what I mean by that is that because sometimes of how people just flippantly treat scripture trying to find significance mm-hmm. and like over-spiritualize certain mm-hmm. elements or numbers or names. Right. I think when we see a structure like that, somebody might be predisposed to go, but like, is that really something that God and Moses are like, they're like, we're getting it that way? Is that intentional? Or are we just looking at it going, oh, look at this, look at this, you know, this little magic framework we have here. Does that make sense what I'm asking? This is where original audience really matters because if this is written to a generation of Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness, guess what they didn't all receive upon publication of this work? A copy of it. They're having to learn this in a way that they can remember. They're going to hear it, not read it. And then they're going to need to carry it inside of them. And so we should not be surprised to find that Old Testament authors are giving people frameworks like this so that they can remember the thing that they wanted you to remember. So that, you know, again, if they're interested in telling you how, then the framework theory is terrible. Uh, but if they're interested in telling you who and why, then the framework theory is genius. Uh, and so, so when you when you start to look at it too, you're like, oh, wow, that's in this case, I would say this is a really obvious one once you see it. Um, and and again, it's we we're like, well, I didn't know that intuitively, so it can't be from the Lord. And I'm like, well, that's most of Scripture is not going to be something that just you know, yeah. in, in your first reading is something that you go, oh, I can remember that forever. Um, and so we, we, we learn to see these things better the more time we spend with. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. Ten Women Who Changed the World as Seminary President Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. Ten Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. 
As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. So I think something to talk about here, and Jen or Kyle, I'd love for you to think about it. I mean, whether whether you're pastoring or in the church, or you just happen to be a faithful Christian, and you've and you've been in a home group before, you've probably heard somebody say something along the lines of a plain reading of Genesis one dot mm-hmm. dot dot. Mm-hmm. And by that they mean if you just come to the text and plainly read it, it clearly says God has created in six literal days, and He's yeah, rested on the seventh day, and to to. Uh, not read it plainly, but to read it like you're saying literately is actually kind of what Kyle's getting at, cute, convenient. What would you say to somebody who's saying this is just a plain reading of the text? You're talking about just like uh, when somebody's like, hey, this is, I, my goal here is just to read this. Yeah, it says, just, it says day. Right, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I so part of it is that we've got to be honest enough with ourselves to realize that Genesis 1 and 2 are going to have some differences. Now, that's not really a problem because I think the fundamental difference between Genesis 1 and 2 is one of perspective and purpose, not in terms of inconsistency. And we'll talk more about that. But um, I think when people say, hey, I'm just coming to Genesis 1 with a plain reading, I say, well, no, you're not. You're just, you're just not. Let's just be honest about it. You're not. Uh, You are, if you know, if you're born, if you were born in the last, you know, gosh, 300, 300 years. <laughs> uh, if you were born in the last 300 years, you are uniquely shaped by a vision of how truth works and how knowledge works and what matters because you're a child of the enlightenment and that's in your water and the air, uh, the air that you breathe. And so you're not just going to come to this with as a blank slate, you are coming to this as a spirit dependent reader. That's the first thing that the only way for us to properly understand scripture is by the illumination of the Holy spirit. So you bet. I hope that you're not coming as a blank slate, because if you are, you will not have the spiritual power necessary to appropriately understand scripture, but you're also coming as somebody who is influenced by the questions, uh, the concerns and the interests of your world and your culture. Mm. And you're going to have to do some of the work to, um, the best way to maybe understand it is, and I think this is particularly felt in the Old Testament, you're going to have to cross an imaginative gap between mm-hmm. you and the imaginative world of the original audience. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to cross that gap. And part of that is by getting a stronger and stronger historical examination of the original audience of Israel. That's a part of how you do that work. So Okay, I would just say for those of you who are like, what do you mean I can't just sit and read my Bible and know what is the important thing? Um, I heard a really good quote and I'm gonna have to circle back and find out where it came from. It was Um, when we were talking the other day. No, 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 it was actually (laughs) someone else, not on this recording. Uh, But he was, oh, it's Alistair Begg. He says, um, main things are plain things and plain things are main things. And so you can certainly read through this account without any knowledge of the original audience mm-hmm. and take away the most important things. Uh, but obviously we don't want to stay with a, just the plain reading as, as, as people who love the Lord, we want to move 
beyond that and ask, you know, I want to meditate on this day and night. That's what I want to do. And so, so if you've read this account for years and the framework theory never plopped into your lap, don't take it too hard, Mm -hmm. but also be encouraged that there's more here for you. That's good, Jen. Um, I don't want us to run out of time without actually seeing it, though. So I have a little challenge for our listeners. If you have not read Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 in a while, I would say hit pause and, and go read through it and then come back and, and listen to this discussion because we're not going to have time to go through it verse by verse. Um, but uh, And we're also, I would, I would love to ask them to, to sketch this out a little bit and just mm, kind of yeah. see how it works because uh, I, I found it to be really useful. So yeah, that's great advice right there, just to press pause and then to come back to it because let's start talking about some of the patterns that we see in those days. We've Mm -hmm. talked a little bit already about this larger framework or the format here of space created on days Mm -hmm. one, two, and three, space filled correspondingly days four, five, and six. And we're going to get to day seven as we land the plane on this episode. But before that, let's talk about some of the other significant words, patterns, or repeated phrases. Because while there is a lot of emphasis placed, you go back to going back to just a plain reading. If you just read this simply, do you know what you're going to find more than day? You're going to find God mentioned a lot more. <laughs> Uh, because why? Genesis 1 is about God creating. You're going to see that God is creating by his word. He's let there be. Uh, What are some of the other things that you're going to see there? So you have God uh, creating. You have him creating by his word. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other ways that creation kind of plays itself out? So again, this is a rhythmic account. It has a lot of repetition because it's intended to be able to be committed to memory fairly easily. So there are five elements of each of the days. Not all of them has every element, but you would assume they're, you know, they're almost implicit in the days where they're not mentioned explicitly. But there's the command, God said, let there be. Then there's the report, and it was so. Then there's the assessment, it was good. Then there is the dominion statement usually, and God called, where God, you know, names something showing that he has um, dominion over it. And then there's a time marker. It says, and there was evening and there was morning the first or second or third day. So those are the significant pieces. And if we pay attention to them, then we'll see when we get to day seven, that one significant marker is actually missing on day seven and it's missing on purpose, but hang on to that thought. Hey, Jen, can we, I, I don't want to put, yeah, I'm, I don't think it's putting on the spot. I think you can do this with your eyes closed, but can we maybe do one of the verses and walk through those five things? Yeah, for sure. Just so, so people can kind of get their hands around it. Yeah. So if you look at uh, verse three, we'll start with the first one. Um, it says, and God said, so there's your command, mm-hmm. uh, let there be light. So there's your, that's the whole command right there. And then it says, and there was light. So that's the, and it was so. Uh, and God saw that the light was good. So there's his assessment. And then we see God doing a work of separation. He separated the light from the darkness. So he's still doing, a, a, there's a creative act going on here where he's establishing dominion. It mm-hmm. says he called the light day and the darkness he called night. Mm-hmm. So there's the, um, the dominion piece. And then it says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. There's the time marker. That's really helpful. I'd never yeah. heard of it quite that way before. Yeah, so I've had, when, when I've had uh, women study this, we chart them out and they mark mm-hmm. each of the elements that's there for each day so that they can see how there's just this, this repetition there for, for the purpose of remembering. For our slower listeners like me, say, say it one more time. Just go through the five real quick. Command, God yep. said, let there be. Report, it was so. Assessment, it was good. Dominion, 
is where God calls or separates, uh, and then time marker. It was evening and it was morning the first day. That's really helpful. Yeah. That is really helpful. Yeah, I, uh, I've uh, one of the things that I think is so interesting about um, seeing that order, even in speci- even in the specific days, not just over the course of the whole of them, is seeing just how purposeful and ordered the creation account is. Not just on the whole of the creation account, but even every specific day, seeing Mm -hmm. that 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 structure is there. Because I do think one of the, uh, this may, maybe I'm pushing a little bit uh, on something you said earlier, but I do think one of the how demonstrations of creation, maybe not how we, the answering of that question the way we want. In a scientific sense, yeah. In a scientific sense, but in a more theological sense is, God is creating something that is ordered and structured. And that is pronounced not just even in why he's creating and in what he's creating and in what order, but how he is going about doing that. And the text is reaffirming that. And I think this is one of the areas where uh, the creation account of Israel stands in such deliberate contrast with the other ancient Near Eastern cosmologies, Mm -hmm. uh, creation accounts, which were so often forged through chaos confusion, conflict, Mm -hmm. and bloodshed. Let me just give you an example of this so that you can feel the dissonance between what Israel's creation account sounds like and something that was very prevalent. So you think about, think about like the Babylonian creation account. This would be uh, uh, summarized in the Enuma Elish. Just think about this and then feel like, does this feel different than the Israel's creation account? You have Marduk, who is this preeminent God among a pantheon of gods. Marduk fights Tiamat, who is an ancient goddess, and in their battle, he defeats her and divides her carcass into heaven and earth. Well, and I believe Tiamat was his mom. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's weird. So so just feel like, okay, this is the other dominant competitor Mm -hmm. in the ancient Near Eastern landscape for cosmology. And how is creation, how does it happen? What's its manner? chaos, confusion, bloodshed, divine Mm -hmm. warfare, animosity. Whereas the Genesis 1 account is peace in the Godhead, delighting love and fellowship, overflowing into an ordered, intentional, purposeful creation. Mm -hmm. Very different. And that word tov is honestly just kind of the icing on the cake, right? Reaffirming this is good. It's as intended. It's aligned. It's purpose. Right, right. Good meaning complete and right. Not right. I mean, morally good certainly because it's a product of a morally good God, but also um, that idea of completion. Yeah. Well, and like one of the things that I didn't notice for years that then came to alarm me is that on day one he creates light. He separates light from darkness, and then pronounces that there was evening and morning, but that the sun, moon, and stars aren't created until day three. And this is one of the, uh, sorry, day four. This is one of the things that is hinting to us that there's something going on here in the text that's bigger than just um, uh, telling you about the things that were created. It's telling them in a certain order in a particular way. Like why talk about um, light and darkness on day one and and then not even talk about heavenly bodies until day four. And as we mentioned, it's because he's creating kingdoms. So on day one, he creates the kingdoms, so to speak, of the the heavens, the, the firmament. Um, and and but it's not filled yet. He's going to fill it when he gets to day four. So if you guys have something you're writing on, listeners, um, you can do two columns. You can do one, two, three on the left hand column, and then four, five, six on the right hand column. So just write them right next to each other, and then above the first one, you can write form, 
And above the second column, you can write fullness. And so on that first day, he creates light. So then we move on to day two, and guess what he, he creates? The sea and the sky. That's what you start. He separates the waters from the waters. It's super easy to understand. No, I'm just joking. It's actually not. You have to really read it slowly to figure out what's going on. Um, but he talks about uh, where the water should be and where uh, the sky should be. That's you know, He's basically making that distinction. So on day two, he creates sea and sky. And then on day three, you see that he creates the land and the vegetation. So you can write those on your one, two, three. And then on day four, five, and six, day four, he creates the heavenly bodies. We should talk more about that because that's significant. Uh, day five, he fills the sea and the sky with the fish and the birds. And on day six, he fills the land and vegetation with the land animals and the humans. So let's come back to heavenly bodies. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So God, so he's created the sea and the sky has created the light and the darkness. But on day four, there's the filling of Mm -hmm. what's actually going to exist in that sky. What's going to exist? What's going to produce light? What's going to mark darkness? And so when we get there to day four, what are some of the reasons why that's such a significant portion of the fullness of the filling of the space? Yeah, you got to remember that original audience because what's happening, Moses is setting them up for life in the land of Canaan. And so he says, let them be for, I'm in verse 14, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. So in other words, these heavenly bodies who you, so the sun, moon, and the stars who in Egypt, you were supposed to bow down and worship. Well, it, under this, this new God, this God that you serve, the one true God, they actually are created by him and they exist to serve you. They're going to tell you how to worship him rightly. Hmm. Uh, and so it's really important because once you get this sun, moon, and stars idea in your head, you can think about where else in the Bible you see it and you can understand it a little differently than perhaps you did before because they're set up to be shown as something that God controls. And then you think about like, for example, in Revelation where it talks about the sun, moon, and the stars falling from the heavens yeah. and you know all those, those ideas that people have about what that might mean. But we have to remember that that sun, moon, and stars language is all through the Old Testament. In fact, in Isaiah, it's used to prophesy the downfall of Babylon uh, in 539 BC. It's used to prophesy the downfall of Assyria in around 600 BC, um, that the sun, moon, and the stars would fall from the heavens. Now, clearly they didn't, right? So this is where we're back to talking about a literate reading versus a literal reading. Uh, It's a way of saying that that principality, that particular ruler is going to be completely toppled. Yeah, and it's not like this is a heavy stretch. Some of these ancient Near Eastern religions, including Egypt, literally personified their gods as suns and moons and yeah, stars. Ph- Pharaoh was supposed to be an embodiment of the sun god, Ra. Right. So it's not like this is a big stretch to say, wow, God is establishing and demonstrating in this creation account the so- his sovereignty over the heavenly bodies, which was a direct correlate to false gods that, mm-hmm. e- that Israel had already seen in Egypt, namely Pharaoh, the ruler, mm-hmm. the enslaver, mm-hmm. Right. I think, uh, <clears throat> I know we talked about this last week uh, or in a previous episode, I can't remember which one it was, uh, not just close readings of the text, which is what we're doing here and should be done, Jen, that was so helpful, but also being reminded of canonical readings and how does this mm-hmm. make sense of the rest of the Pentateuch? How mm-hmm. does it make sense of the Old Testament? 
and then the New Testament. So as you were just talking, Jen, I was thinking to myself, okay, so what, what are the what are the canonical threads that we might be able to? And there's there's tons. We can't yeah. hit all of them, but just the ones that came to my mind quickly were first thing is Psalm. 19 and thinking about how the heavens declare the glory of God. And so the heavens, now that God has created, aren't glorious in themselves, but rather they declare the glory of God. The sky mm-hmm. proclaims his handiwork day to day, is pouring out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So the psalmist is taking this theology of creation and again giving us an ability to canonically read it and say, okay, so these things were created by God for God so that we might give glory to God. That's really and, good. And then you also have John uh, at the beginning of his gospel giving us kind of a, a new creation account when he's talking about Jesus and he's saying he is the light of the world. He is the luminary of the world who's coming to bring about a new creation. John 1 verse 4 says this, in him was life and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So John is trying to give us a clue into saying, hey, this is the creator of the world who has now also come to redeem the world and bring light to the world. And then the same author, John, writing on the island of Patmos years later, after he's seen the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, writes this uh, in Revelation chapter 21. He says, And the city had no need for sun or moon to shine on it, mm-hmm. for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And so you think about the very beginning of the Bible, giving us a picture of what, why did God create light and darkness and how does he fill it with luminaries? And then he says the true luminaries, the sun, who is the light of the world. And one day we're not going to have need for these other created aspects because Jesus himself will be the light of the world forever. Yeah, that's good, man. That is so good. And I want to come back to that here in a moment to land the plane, because we're going to talk about Genesis two, one through three and the seventh day, which connects to exactly what you're saying. JT. But before we do that, I just want to mention how uh, how righteous and awake you are this morning, because while you were thinking about canonical themes, I was thinking the perfect clickbait title for this episode would be, <laughs> would be who has a heavenly body No, or check out or Ew. check out the, or check out these heavenly bodies. And, and then I was Ew. literally thinking, I was literally thinking about that title. I was like, I wonder if I get that Pastor Jen. And then you were like, I'd like to tease out some canonical themes real quick. And I was like, Ew. man, I am not with, I'm not walking with the Lord in this moment right now. <laughs> Gosh, I need Lauren uh, to like stand behind you and blink twice if she's no, okay. Multiple times, <laughs> multiple times, Lauren is, has signaled or texted to me that was a bad joke. Um, so, <laughs> trust me, it is happening. Um, but the one thing I do want to mention um, and kind of getting us there uh, in Genesis two one through three, we get the seventh day. Yeah. So we've talked about this. The 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 space is formed, and then there's this fullness. There's the filling of this space, mm-hmm. but. Day seven stands out and it stands out for an important reason. What's different about that seventh day from the pattern we've seen, Jen? Yeah, well, you're you're missing the time marker. It doesn't say, and there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. It says instead in verse three of chapter two, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy or he set it apart because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so um, Moses gives us this indication, uh, hang with me, that the seventh day, has no end. Um, And so again, you start to realize, wait a minute, there might be something bigger going on here. Sabbath is going to dominate the thinking of Israel. It's going to be, uh, I I believe there are are more references to um, the fifth commandment 
uh, sorry, the fourth commandment of keeping Sabbath in, in the Old Testament than to any other of the Ten Commandments. It's just a concept that is going to be um, just uh, repeated and repeated and repeated so that it would settle into their memories um, because the the revelation account is going to tell us that God is making all things new. It's that final creative act that we see and it will uh, usher in the the seventh day of rest that has no end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Revelation 22, five and night will be no more. Mm-hmm. This is, there's, this is the day, the new heavens and the new earth, the day of the Lord, the final day when all things are remade and restored. What is that bringing us to the unending Sabbath rest with God? And you can see the text is keying us, like it says in verse one of chapter two, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the, and all the host of them and the seventh day God finished his work. So what does God say on the seventh day? It is finished. Absolutely. Uh, What does Christ say on the cross? It is finished. The work of establishing you and me as a new creation has been met. And then what happens in Revelation 21? We hear a voice say, it is done. Yep. Absolutely. There's that canonical reading. Boom. There it is right there. And I think it's so pivotal because, um, gosh, our, our, we are in a moment right now. And I think that this has become, it's almost become fashionable, I think, to talk about rest. Like, I just think it's become kind of, in, it's in vogue right now mm-hmm. to talk about rest. Um, partly because of a culture of exhaustion and burnout. There's this Korean philosopher, this Korean-born German philosopher, Byung-Chul Han, and he says uh, that... that <laughs> Uh, the, Love him. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, I was just Han. reading him this morning. Yeah. He says, um, "He says uh, in the West, people are too alive to die and too dead to live." It's in a book called Burnout okay. Society. Too alive to die, too dead to live. And I think there's particular pastoral application right now in this moment to this Sabbath day that we were meant to live an unending Sabbath rest with God. And that doesn't mean we weren't supposed to work because what is God calling Adam and Eve to before that unending day to cultivate and subdue, to be fruitful and multiply. And we're gonna come back with Dr. Moore mm-hmm. in a future episode and talk specifically about Imago Day and cultural mandate um, uh, and how those shape our reading of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But I think you're right, Jen, that this theme of Genesis 2, 1 through 3, this unending Sabbath rest and the idea of the finished work of God is so pivotal, not just for our reading of Genesis, but for our reading of the Gospels and our vision of new creation. Yeah, if you start paying attention to the word choice in Genesis 1 in particular, you've got these concepts of separation, and then you start to notice that God actually performs this act of separation is being set apart, it's being sanctified. So that theme of separation is going to continue through the rest of Scripture. Israel is separated from the other nations, set apart. Um, the idea of light and darkness, that's another big theme that you re- if you only read the New Testament, you're like, oh, that's a nice image, you know, when he says, for you were once darkness. But he's he means for you to think about this, that you were darkness and God spoke, let there be light. And there was light. And then yeah. all of a sudden you saw what you couldn't see before, you know, and then in you, he brought about fruitfulness and multiplication. You ruled and subdued sin. And then he is turning you into one who is going to enter into that final rest. That's good. Oh man, I could talk about Genesis 1 and Genesis 1 and 2 all day long. And we are, we're going to do it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, JT really helped me with, even with like the gospel of John. Uh, Do you remember that JT we were talking about? It was, I guess it was when you guys were doing the sermon series and you kept saying, look, there's Genesis again. Look, there's Mm -hmm. Genesis again. And I was like, 
dang it. <laughs> You're better at this. <laughs> it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And we'll continue to find those canonical themes as we go through Genesis 1 through 11. Listen, if you're enjoying following along, you can join the conversation by finding us on social media. Knowing Faith Podcast is on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. If you're interested in subscribing to a monthly newsletter we put out or finding out some other cool things that we're doing, you can go to patreon.com slash knowingfaith and find out more about what we have going on there. In our next episode, we'll spend time with Dr. Russell Moore, author, speaker, and president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission discussing Genesis 1, 27 through 30, focusing on what it means to be an image bearer of God and to fulfill the cultural mandate. Grace and peace.